And while they're doing that, I, um, John McDonald came into church today, and we were t- chatting, and he goes, you know one of the things that I really miss? And, he, and I said, no, what's that? And he said, God stories. And I said, well, you know what? I'm, I kind of miss God stories too. And actually, we've got a um, plan in place where we would, we're going to start having those again. Now, if you're not familiar with the term, really all a God story is is a testimony. So if someone has gone out and they've encountered someone and they've shared the gospel with them or they've prayed with them um, and they have a story to tell about that encounter, then we, that's a God story. And so what we want to do, however, instead of having people come up front and tell them is we want to actually put them uh, on video so that we sort of have them in perpetuity um, and can show them at various times in our service, maybe as, uh, as we uh, see fit. So, if you have a God story, uh, would you please see Nick? Nick, you want to wave at people from back there in the sound booth? That's Nick. Everybody say hi, Nick. Hi. Nick is going to um, be video, videoing. I mean, you can't say filming anymore because nobody uses film. So, video, videotape, they don't use videotape either. Recording, there you go, thank you. So Nick will be recording on video <laughs> the, uh, the God stories, and then we'll edit them. And, and so if you have one, please see him, and he'll tell you kind of what to do and how we're going to approach this. So um, we would love to get those started. And as I mentioned, the board in the back is also going to really become our wall of testimony. So you can record it, but you can also write it out. We're going to put uh, all these testimonies on the wall because there's something about hearing a testimony of what God is doing that can really raise your level of faith. Because so often, um, you know, you'll, you'll hear something like that, and the thought is, well, if God would do that for them, why wouldn't they do it for, for me? And the answer is, well, he will. <laughs> and so sometimes, and there's just some, I've heard some amazing testimonies, and then uh, kind of what has resulted from that testimony, even as they were being spoken. So there's some real power there. So uh, let's get into uh, our message today. So kind of an uh, intriguing title, Quiet Eye, but there's, um, there's a phenomenon that's behind that, which I'll explain. So researchers who have been looking into um, kind of the phenomenon or, or the process of what really makes an elite athlete, you know, what makes someone able to perform in extreme circumstances. And one of the interesting uh, and intriguing aspects that they have found is that there is this phenomenon that they have called quiet eye. And it's, it's best described as sort of an enhanced visual perception where the athlete is, enable, is able to just eliminate distractions and, and really just kind of focus on what the next thing they have to do is. So it's particularly important at, uh, to have this at a time of great stress, you know, so that there you are not, or so that it prevents this phenomenon of choking, which, you know, is sort of when you have a big shot to win the game and um, you shoot an air ball. That's choking, right? So, um, so any, to any moment of high pressure to have this ability to sort of Calm everything down. Um, it's sort of this, you've heard, I think it may be described as sort of 
someone being in the flow, that they're just in this flow or zone is another word that's used. You're, you're in the zone, right? Um, it's this, and it's not just in athletics. It's this same kind of focus that allows, you know, really highly skilled surgeons to do what they do. Um, and it's becoming increasingly interesting to the military as well. So there was this uh, kinesiologist named Dr. Joan Vickers. Kinesiologist, there we go. Um, and she began to sort of suspect that um, the secret in how these extreme athletes could perform at that high level was in how they saw the world, okay? So she, uh, gathered a group of professional golfers together and she hooks them up to this device and she monitored their eye movements as they were putting. And she found this intriguing correlation that the better the player, the longer and steadier they looked at the ball just before and then during when they struck it. Okay, So if you were more of a novice golfer, um, you tended to shift their, your focus on various uh, um, areas of the scene. So you might look at the ball, then look at the hole, and look at the ball, then look at the hole, then look at the piece of grass that might be in the way. And so you're looking at all these different things. The really elite golfers were able to line it up and then just focus on the ball and put all their focus there. And so, you know, really, you've heard, we've heard this term, keep your eye on the ball, for years, right? I mean, that's nothing new. But this sort of suggests that there's something a little bit more intricate going on. That, you know, that somehow or another, the length at which they are gazing at this particular object correlates to some degree with some measure of success, okay? Now, you know, we don't wanna, there's a lot of other factors that can go into making a great athlete. Obviously, genetics being among uh, one of the, the primary ones, but We've all uh, probably heard of examples of average in skill level athletes rising to extraordinary levels. And a lot of it could be because of their practice habits or their will or their dedication. But I think there's an element of it that's in this same concept of a quiet eye. And so in the passage of scripture that we're going to look at today, which is from the Old Testament, we're going to see one of the characters from the Old Testament who has this phenomenon of a quiet eye sort of going on in his own life. And uh, his name was Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah, just to set the stage for the story we're going to uh, look at here in a minute, or the text, Nehemiah is in the employment of a Persian king, okay? He is the cupbearer. And so, but Nehemiah gets this news that, uh, from people that are traveling that uh, the Jews that are in Jerusalem have escaped the exile that they were uh, forced to endure, um, but they were in pretty bad shape. That they're in Jerusalem, they're not doing well, and a lot of it had to do with because the wall surrounding the city had been destroyed. And so God really gave Nehemiah a burden for those exiles and for, for the, the, the state that the city of Jerusalem was in. And so he goes to the king, he seeks favor, and he receives it, and then he sets off for Jerusalem with this intent to rebuild the wall. So he gets there, he quickly recruits people to help, and he begins this process of reconstructing the wall. 
thing is that throughout this process, there were these uh, potential distractions, and not the least of which came from this trio of enemies, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab. All right, so these are the three primary bad guys in our story. Um, and the reason for their opposition was simply that they hated the Jews, and they didn't want to see them be successful. Okay, so they try once to sort of physically disrupt the work by planning an attack, but that ends up getting foiled. Uh, and so the Three Stooges decide to try a different approach. And so that brings us to the text that we have today, uh, which is Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. So let's begin and look in the ch verses 1 and 2. So it says, Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hecaphirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. Okay. So, as we saw, they have already had tried to do him harm once. Um, but that didn't work. And so they have now found out that this work has gone on ahead, and the wall is practically finished at this point. And, and so in pretty remarkable time, Nehemiah has led the Jews in the complete rebuilding of this wall. And I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of the wall or you've seen a map of Jerusalem. It's not like a little 12 by 12 kind of wall. This thing's massive. You know, extends for hundreds and hundreds of feet. I don't, maybe miles, I don't know. It's big. Let's just say it's big. And so he's restored this. The majority of the work is done. So these three uh, enemies realize they can't stop the wall's completion. And that's all but a done deal. So now they figure, well, if we can't stop the wall's completion, maybe the next best thing is we'll just eliminate Nehemiah. Because he's clearly a leader and is, um, is organizing the Jews in, in their restoration. So um, they send Nehemiah a message and saying, hey, you know, come on, let's just get together and meet and talk and... We'll drink some wine and hang out. Well, that's not exactly what he said, but that's kind of the, uh, that's the Jeff version of, of what they said. Uh, but their whole point was they wanted to get Nehemiah away from Jerusalem where he had, not had supporters and people who would defend him. Okay, so if they can get him away, they figure, well, we can do away with him. Um, there's really nothing mentioned in the meeting, in, in this text, about what the purpose of, of the meeting was or why they were choosing to meet. Um, it could have been simply been that they were thinking maybe Nehemiah would figure that this is some kind of a peace conference, that, you know, oh well, you know, they, they tried, they lost, now they just want to make peace. But I think more likely that the enemy's strategy is well, if you can't whip them, join them, and then take over once we're inside, right? So, and it, it kind of works the same in a ministry setting. It's sort of like once an enemy gets kind of a foothold in a ministry and can work from within and ultimately destroy it, okay? And so he's a master deceiver that understands that if he can get his own little minions to come in and join hands with people in a ministry setting, then he can weaken the work that they're doing. 
So Nehemiah sort of sniffs this out. He understands what's going on. And so he just says, nope, he, he's going to stand by his convictions. He's convinced, first of all, that they're lying and more than likely wanted to kill him. And secondly, he must have had some sort of a spiritual discernment. Uh, and I think all good leaders have that. You know, they sort of understand that something is coming against whatever it is that they're trying to do. And so they know to avoid that. So that's really what's going on in the first couple of verses. So then we go to verse 3, where it says, and this is Nehemiah speaking, And I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop when I leave it and come down to you? So the thing is, Nehemiah is convinced that he's doing this great thing. He's doing this thing not only for God, but for God's people as well. And so if he allows himself to be distracted from the work that he truly believes that God's called him to do, well, where are his people going to go for any kind of leadership? Right? And a leaderless project is one that is more than likely going to eventually fall apart. Right? So, and the leader himself has got to be a good example and participate in the project as well. So <clears throat> there was really no reason for him to go. I mean, he knew these three guys were antagonistic to pretty much everything that he stood for and everything that he was trying to do, right? They don't like the Jews. They don't like to see the Jews be successful. Those things are happening. And so why have they suddenly changed their mind and decided, oh, you know, let's be friends? So it was, and really what he's saying is that this project that he's working on, the rebuilding of this wall, relative to meeting with these three guys, this meeting is inconsequential relative to the greatness of the project that he's trying to complete. So for that reason, he says, nope, sorry, not interested. Well, they didn't give up. Because verse 4 says, And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them the same, in the same manner. So, I mean, what's sort of funny about this is that, as Nehemiah admits in the first verse, all that's really left to do on this project is to hang the gates. The wall's done. They probably could have hung the gates without him. Just saying. That probably isn't anything that required Nehemiah's specific expertise. So, um, he could have said, well, you know, I guess I could go, but he's not willing to do that. He's one of those leaders that wants to see the project through. Right? And so he's basically saying, look, I can't go. We're, we're not finished yet. I just don't see this as being any benefit. And so his enemies, all they can do is just kind of keep repeating the invitation. And he's not, Nehemiah is convinced that he's not going to become entangled in something that's not going to be beneficial to him or to the Jewish people and is essentially going to waste his time. And so, um, you know, he figures, well, and we have to look at it, well, if the offer wasn't any good the first time, it's not going to be any better the second or the third or the fourth, or the 50th for that matter. Um, and there's kind of a crucial thing here. If you make a decision based only on opinions, you could maybe reconsider your decision. But if you've made a, a, a decision that's based on your convictions, then there's no reason for you to reconsider. Right? Because your convictions ought to be what you stand for. And so therefore, Nehemiah's convictions were set. 
there was no reason to even entertain what these guys were going to say because rebuilding the wall was not his opinion. It was his conviction. And if that happens, you know, if a leader goes down that road, then decision becomes indecision. And, you know, the leader is supposed to be a guidepost. And if he's going to do everything based on opinion, then he's really nothing more than a weather vane that just spins and points whatever way the wind's blowing. So, short passage today. So what's the big idea that we really can pull out of this? Well, it's that I, what I think it is, is that Nehemiah is demonstrating for us how to deal with the distractions that we may encounter relative to God's mission. Okay? So what are the lessons that we can take from this, right? What does Nehemiah show us that's important as we go through this? Well, I think first and foremost is that we should count on opposition to our lives and our ministries. Now, I don't see my C.S. Lewis scholar here today. Jim Blowers is, I think he's across the hall teaching. But um, he is my uh, go-to for C.S. Lewis. He, is, uh, he loves the writings of C.S. Lewis. And one of his more famous works was called The Screwtape Letters. Anybody here read Screwtape? All right, for a number of you have read it. Okay, so essentially for those that haven't, it was published back in 1942 and the, the gist of the book is that the story takes the form of a series of letters that uh, a senior demon, whose name is Screwtape, is writing to his uh, junior tempter nephew, whose name is Wormwood. Okay, and so the uncle is trying to mentor the nephew in uh, the responsibility of how to secure the damnation of this British man who is known as the patient. In the book, he's called the patient, okay? And so uh, the whole book is really this series of letters that Uncle Screwtape has written to his nephew on how best to knock this British man away from Christianity, away from following the faith. And there's some, there were some portions of the book that deal directly with this whole idea of opposition and distractions. And so I'm going to read you a couple of passages that... Uh, that deal with that. Keep in mind, too, when I mention the enemy, the enemy in this passage is actually referring to God because we're looking at this from the viewpoint of a demon, right? Okay, so the demon's enemy is God, right? So that gives some context to it. So here is his first series of advice to his nephew. You will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wandering attention. You no longer need a good book, which he really likes, to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep. A column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods. So let me stop here and just ask a question. So how much of your time every day is spent doing nothing? And by this, I'm not talking about like a restful peace that, you know, we all deserve if we've been particularly busy. I'm talking about fruitless wasting of time spent staring at some sort of a screen, whether it's a phone or a tablet or a computer, or just simply procrastinating, or doing anything that 
prevents you from engaging with God. See, our whole society is built around this whole idea of sort of distracting us from what really matters. And it really takes a, a certain amount of strength and, and willfulness to sort of push back at that, to resist this temptation to just do nothing at all for long periods of time. Screwtape goes on to tell Wormwood what happens if humans fail to fight this temptation. He says, all the healthy and outgoing activities which we want him to avoid can be inhibited and nothing given in return, so that at least he may say, as one of my own patients said on his arrival down here, I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. The Christians describe the enemy as one without whom nothing is strong. And nothing is very strong. Strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what or knows not why. It does not matter how small the sin, how small the sins are provided. Excuse me, start over with that. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and into doing nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. You see, why would the devil need to spend so much time and energy turning you into an evil person when getting you to stare at your phone for hours at a time really has the same effect? The devil doesn't need to make you bad if he just makes you ineffective, if he keeps you distracted. Screwtape concludes with this. The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. You see, Scripture is very clear on the fact that we are engaged in a battle. The problem, however, is that many of us either don't really believe that or we choose not to believe it. As I talk to people, and I find this to be true over and over again, we all seem to be perfectly comfortable with the idea that there are angels. We, we kind of like that idea, you know, that there are these unseen beings that are around us and, and, and all this, and that, that that's just, that's fine. But as soon as you mention their counterpart, demons, people start to get all weird and they just want to deny that they even exist. But the evidence is there if you choose to see it. There is a uh, fascinating article in the current issue of Charisma magazine about a man named Blake Healy who has written a book called The Veil. He's actually written a couple of books, but in this book, The Veil, he talks about the gift that he has of seeing in the Spirit. It's truly interesting what he sees. 
And he start, this happened, started happening when he was a very young boy, and he had no idea what was going on. In fact, as he grew up, he started to think he was insane because he was seeing all of these things happening. And it wasn't until he was about 12 years old that he got into a church that helped him understand that he had a gifting. And what he was seeing was into the spirit because he would see both angels and he would see uh, the demonic as well. And so he goes on sort of thinking that he was unique in this sense until he publishes this book. And now all of a sudden he's getting thousands of emails from people who have this same gift, who can see these same things. And they thought they were insane. And so it's like suddenly all of these people have this common commonality. I only bring this up to say it's a very real battle. Yeah. Right? With very real opposition. And that's what we have to count on. Is when we get engaged in, in, in anything that is for the good of the kingdom, this is going to be what happens to us. We just need to be prepared for it by counting on it. Okay, secondly, discouragement will come amidst time of great progress in ministry. Isn't it interesting, I think, how when you get to a point where you feel like you're really getting traction with something, you know, with a project or, or some ministry area, and all of a sudden, some kind of massive discouragement knocks you off course. I mean, quite honestly, it's been happening to me since a couple of months ago when I announced that we were going to really go hard after God, that we're going to pursue growth, that we're going to pursue the making of new disciples, that we're going to start changing things and, and refocusing. Do you know what's happened since then? Since the Sunday I made that announcement, both our attendance and our giving have gone down, and in some cases, dramatically so. Now, if I wasn't aware that this, is the f this kind of thing happens when you put a stake in the ground for God, I could be very discouraged by this. And it might be enough to say, well, gosh, you know, if everyone's going to leave, then maybe we ought to do something else. Oh, heck no. <laughs> um, see, the thing is, the way I look at it, if the enemy's not bothering you a little bit, you're probably not doing anything. You don't need to be bothered with. If your spiritual pursuits are on autopilot, or even worse, non-existent, then Satan has nothing to worry about with you. Why should he bother? You're not doing anything for the kingdom anyway. But if you're excited about Jesus, if you're excited about what we're doing here at this church, if you're excited to be doing something to advance the kingdom of God, then it's very likely that something is going to happen that will try to discourage you from one or all of those things. You see, and the, and the thing is that unlike God, God is a creator. God can make something out of nothing. Our enemy is nothing but a boring, predictable copycat. 
He uses all the same schemes, all the same trials, all the same tactics every time to try and discourage us. And the sad thing is that so often we don't recognize it. And he can do that, like I said, because they work. We just fall right into it. Oh, gosh, no one's coming to church. I need, I, I need, to, I need to change what we're doing. I don't like empty seats. See, the thing is, I don't, I don't rejoice when this kind of thing happens. But I do sort of smile a little bit to myself and acknowledge okay, well then I'm doing something right here because this opposition has started to come against us. Suddenly someone is trying to discourage me from doing what we're doing. And so, as I'm saying, the key is simply just to expect it and then ignore it. <laughs> know that it's going to come and then just ignore it and go the other way. And the best way to ignore it is this. The supremacy of your purpose allows you to diminish the distraction. If God is for us, who can be against us? Is what Paul writes at the end of the 8th chapter of Romans. Right? You're probably familiar with that. And I think that probably Paul, maybe better than anybody else, understood distractions in ministry. Listen to what he says. This is in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 28, as he's talking about his journey of following Jesus and preaching the word and building his kingdom. Here's what he says. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. <laughs> Would any of us be willing to endure even a tenth of that? And if we did, let's just say we could endure a tenth of that, would, be, would we be willing at the end of all that to go, if God is for us, who can be against us? Are you kidding me? More likely what we would be saying is, with friends like God, who needs enemies? But the thing is, Paul wasn't writing this to complain. He was defending himself against some people who were um, these so-called super apostles who were challenging his own ethnicity and his message of salvation. The point here is that Paul clearly understood the supremacy of his message, the supremacy of the purpose that God had called him to. And that understanding was what enabled him also to say this. This is paraphrased from Philippians chapter 1. I really don't care if I live or I die. 
I die, I get to be with Jesus. If I live, I get to continue to tell everybody about him. I'm good either way. It's the same thing with Nehemiah. Nehemiah's telling these three guys, hey, look, I'm doing something worthwhile here. Stop bothering me. Talk to the hand. You see, there really is no greater purpose in life than to proclaim Jesus to others. Once you get kind of settled with that fact, once you get that down deep inside of you, the distractions will just fade away. And finally, you have a role in rebuilding the ruins of this world. Now we've talked about this before. Not all of us are cut out to be Paul, to be Martin Luther, to be Mother Teresa. But we all have a role. We all have gifts. We can all serve other people. In John chapter 13, Jesus comes into the room with his disciples, takes off his outer garments, gets a towel, wraps it around himself, and proceeds to begin washing the disciples' feet. It was an object lesson in serving other people. He's telling them, you all need to get this mindset. This is the way you need to operate. Why is he telling them that? Well, because later on in the passage, he says this. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you go and serve other people as I am serving you. Do you know what your role is? If you know what it is, are, are you doing it? And if you don't, then what's opposing you or distracting you from doing it? If you don't know what your role is, when are you going to find out? Can one of the pastors here help you? Just talk to you and say, hey, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing. Well, we'd love to talk to you and, and pray with you. So this all sort of brings us to um, this faith in action portion of what uh, this message is. And here's, here's the thing. Everybody is tempted to allow these distractions and these things that get in our way to grab all of our attention and all of our energy. It just happens. The busyness of life can rob us both of uh, the joy of service and of seeing the completed work through to the end. So what, need, what needs to change in your life to allow God's tasks the place of priority? <coughs> Secondly, do you view telling people about Jesus as a supreme purpose. Or is it just something that Jeff tells you to do every Sunday during the message? 
if you don't view it that way, what can you do to correct that? And finally, what is it that God's stirring up in your heart? And how does that lead toward some greater purpose in the future? What is your sense of what God's doing in your life right now? What is your sense of what God's purpose is for you? Are you willing to take some time and just go before him and ask? And then listen to see what he says. We're all called upon to have a faith that impacts lives other than our own. It's not supposed to end with your salvation. That's wonderful. We love when that happens. But that's not the end of the journey. It's really just the beginning of the journey. And if we're going to have faith that impacts lives other than our own, then we have got to develop our own quiet eye when it comes to fulfilling our purpose in the kingdom. Just as those professional athletes are able to sort of tune out everything that's going on around them, the noise of the crowd, taunting, you know, maybe they, the officials haven't been great. Well, you, okay, don't worry about that. I've just got to focus on what I'm doing here and not get distracted on the purpose that I'm after. We've got to identify and eliminate those things that keep us from not only getting close to God, but also serving Him too. As I was working on this, I came upon what I thought was the perfect definition of the Christian's quiet eye. It's Hebrews 12.2. And I like it the most, the way um, it's put in the message translation. So listen to Hebrews 12, uh, 2 and 3. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God he could put up with anything along the way. Cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there, in the place of honor, right alongside God. When you find yourself flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item. That long litany of hostility that Jesus plowed through that will shoot adrenaline into your souls. Let's pray.
Lord God, it can be nothing but clear that you have given each one of us an assignment. Scripture repeats that over and over again in, in many different ways by telling us that we're members of, of a body and that each one of those members has a very specific role or part to play. In the Great Commission, you tell us to go and evangelize the nations. And yet, so many of us suffer from distraction, from something or someone opposing the work that you've called us to do. It may be fear. Well, if it's fear, then we need to focus on your perfect love, which casts out all fear. Maybe it's embarrassment. Well, I think you would tell us that we just need to get over that. Father, we ask you, just reveal to us what it is that might be keeping us from this. Lord, my prayer in this prayer <laughs> is that we would have so many people volunteering to serve in so many different capacities in this church that we have trouble keeping track of everybody. So guide and direct those who call this place their church home, their church family, to find their place, to deal with the distractions and the oppositions that may be getting in the way. To begin serving you, not serving the church, not serving others necessarily, but serving you as the ultimate in service. So I, I just thank you for this message and for the truth that it contains. We thank you for the example of Nehemiah and of Paul as well, who show us what quiet eye looks like when it comes to ministry and when it comes to focusing on the purposes that you have for us. We just give you thanks. We give you praise and we give you glory. All that you so richly deserve. Bless us all now as we leave this place. Remind us in a variety of ways to make time for you and with you in this coming week. That we may ponder some of these questions that are before us about purpose and distraction and limitation. Bless all of these wonderful people until they until we have a chance to be together once again. We love you and we thank you and we serve you. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.